Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 183 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with herbalist Susan Belsinger all about elderberries. The plant profile is on dill, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events and this week's garden tasks in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word on Winter Dreams of Spring by Christy Page of Green Prince. This episode, we're joined by returning guest, Susan Belsinger. She is a herbalist and an author, and she was last on the Garden DC podcast talking to us about growing ginger and turmeric, and we're having her back this time to talk all about elderberry. Welcome back, Susan. Hi, Kathy. It's good to be here. Great to have you. And I was just telling you before we started the recording how much I love elderberries with a white hot passion. <laughs> and I will have to confess, though, that I've just started growing it myself. So I'm eager to learn more tips that you might be able to share with us today about growing it, about processing it, about using it. But before we dive into all of that, I wanted to ask you, since we last had you on last summer, have there been any updates in your professional life, any big talks coming up or articles or anything like that that our listeners should know about? Well, thank you. Yeah, since since we talked in July, I've had my elderberry harvest <laughs> oh. and my elderflower harvest. So I, I put them up in all different kinds of way, which we'll, we'll get into. And I also had my big ginger and turmeric harvest, uh, which the uh, ginger was ready in about September, but the turmeric, I waited until almost frost before I harvested. It seems that the turmeric takes longer than the ginger to uh, mature. And it also takes way longer to germinate. And so I have made a lot of uh, products with all of those things. And in fact, I really love the combination of ginger and elder uh, berries together. So uh, we'll talk about making um, some syrups and things with that. Let's see. I was able to go uh, to the Ozarks in uh, the beginning of January, where we um, did a documentary that was pertaining to the Folklife Festival that I did in July here. And uh, it was about women of the Ozarks. So that was really fun and exciting. And uh, I'll be posting that link up on Facebook when the documentary is ready. And um, in March, I'm getting ready to go teach folk school. And I'll be teaching herbal allies and herbal remedies. And I'll also be making pasta. Uh, herbal pasta class. And uh, then I'll be doing the National Herb Day is the first week in May. And uh, we're having a big event at the Ozark Folk Center. But there are herbal events on that first week of May, always throughout the whole United States. So that's the time to look for herb events to go learn and to also buy plants of things like elderberry and and ginger and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. those are a few of the upcoming things that I have going on. Yeah, there's always some great herb festivals around May and June in the D.C. region and throughout the Mid-Atlantic. And of course, that's high gardening time as well. So there's always tons of garden festivals to go to as well. And they're so fun and you can learn so much. So let's turn to the topic of the show, elderberry. And so we know it also by its Latin name, Sambucus. And so let's talk about elderberry, the plant itself. And it's uh, been used for centuries, I know, in folk medicine, um, but it's been grown both by Native Americans and throughout Europe because there's a native elderberry and a non-native one. Can you talk about that a little, Susan? Yes. They're Central European plants and North American uh, Mm -hmm. natives. And the ones that we find in North America that our Native Americans used really were just found growing wild along roadside, forests, edges, abandoned fields, places like that. And that one is the Sambucus canadensis, the American one. Mm -hmm. And the Sambucus nigra is the European elderberry. We have all of those in the United States now. And once they establish themselves in colonies, you know, they send out the runners. And so you will always have them unless you are really mean to them and, you know, run over them with a tractor or something like that. Even if you cut them back to the ground, they re-sprout. So uh, once, once you've got elders established, you're going to have them because, you know, they just send out their runners and they make like little colonies and they'll even travel under sidewalks and, and roads and things like that. And, send their colony across the street <laughs> or in, in you know in the in the edge of the woods or whatever they're doing mm-hmm. um it is good elderberries tend to fruit the best if you have at least two you know near one another and it can even be two different varieties and that's probably i would say near each other within 60 feet of of one another. I've established elder in my yard, and I've also tried to establish some of the hybrids that are are beautiful, the ones that have been developed for purple foliage or variegated foliage. And I find them to be much slower growers, and they don't get as big as our canadensis does. Yeah, and some of those cultivars that are now available on the market are just stunning. There's like like the black one you mentioned, there's a lemony lime, almost chartreuse leaf one, and they are a little bit, you know, shorter and more compact for the home garden, but they're still not small plants. Like I think the straight species can get what six to ten feet high, um, whereas maybe the cultivars are more in the like four to six feet. Right, uh, and really, I would say that that canadensis easily ten to twelve feet, easy. And wow. that's tall and wide. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's if you're growing it, I'd say in zones about three to eight. When you're talking about the ones like the Black Beauty or the Black Lace that have the, you know, just the eye-catching purple foliage and um, really lovely pinky purple blooms, they are only going to get about six feet, max eight feet tall and wide. They just don't get as big. And then the the one that I, I'm trying to grow, and I have it, it's three years old, the variegated one. And it's it's just gorgeous. 
but it's it's growing like a snail's at a snail's pace. It's you know, it's three years and it's not much higher than about my waist or chest height. Hmm. Okay. So um, they really and it you know it's in the same kind of location that my other ones you know my native ones are thriving and you know growing in leaps and bounds. So. Um, they are less vigorous and productive, I believe, but they're worth having because of their beauty. I can imagine that for a very good leaf cultivar, that it's not going to get as much chlorophyll uptake in it, maybe, and it's not as strong a plant, but it does sound like it's more apt for somebody with a smaller size garden or a container, even maybe growing it in that if they just want a, one small elderberry plant. Right. And yeah, uh, think of it more as an ornamental. So mm -hmm. Ka uh, Kathy, don't you find that generally, I would say, that variegated plants don't grow as well as the same species in green-leaved? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say it's a very general that that's true, that, you know, they're forcing out maybe more foliage and not as many flowers or berries because they're, again, having to uptake more chlorophyll to bring that back down to the roots. But, you know, still worth growing, still gorgeous. And so I'm going to imagine for sighting elderberry best in a home landscape, that full sun for as many berries as possible is probably ideal. I, I think that full sun part shade is totally fine. Mine that are on the edge of the wood row are better than the ones that are right out in full sun, actually. I think that that's a, a good place to put them. So full to part sun. I don't think that they're really fussy because I've had them germinate from bird droppings out mm -hmm. there. Uh, where I did not plant them, let's say that. So it could have been from not just a bird. It could have been from another animal that left it in its scat. I would say that they're really not fussy about their soil type, although I think that they, and what I've read, is they like a slightly acidic soil. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's going to be happy in, in higher organic matter. So I would, if I were planting I would definitely amend my soil with compost. Mm -hmm. And I've read that they can grow in poorly drained wet soils. And they can, but they're not going <laughs> to do as well as if they're in a in a bed with proper drainage. You know, so you're going to uh, set your shrubs out in the spring. And then depending upon which variety you have, you're going to need to at least put them six to 10 feet apart, I would say, to allow them to spread and to be able to get around them and harvest them and things like that. And the other thing is, is they don't have really deep root systems. They're, they're fairly shallow. So a good thing is, is to mulch around them, you know, to fertilize them every year with compost. Um, so if you have a plant, go out and clear back the weeds and anything that's growing around the bottom and then um, give it some compost. And then it's always good to mulch, whether it's hay or straw or bark chips that help to, you know, control the weeds because any weeds are competing with the water and nutrients for the, the shrub itself. 
Yeah, and like a lot of shallow-rooted fruit-bearing plants like figs, don't they do not like any competition in that root zone. It's it's true. There there are plants that when they have root competition, they just give up. You know, they won't even try to fight it out. Some plants, so it's um it's always good to keep anything, especially new shrubs that are small, free of of weeds if you can do that. So by mulching, that helps us to keep the weeds down. You know how that is. I start weeding at one place in the garden, and by the time I get all the way around the garden where I began, needs weeding again. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, so when you're saying it's a, a spreader, creates a, a bit of a thicket around it, that kind of is our clue for propagation. So I'm imagining that once it sends out that next runner, that you could easily dig that, separate that from the mom plant, pot that up and pass that on, or plant it somewhere else in your landscape. Yeah, it it's, it is a pass along plant because they sucker so freely. You know, they just... They just do that. I will say, though, that the new sucker plant, which they sometimes refer to as a lateral, they're not going to produce heavily, you know, that first season. They're going to do better in the second and third year. It's good if you get in there, you prune out some of the old stuff because they get less productive. So the the two and three-year-old branches are the most productive. But what I try to do is leave an equal number of one, two, and three-year-old branches so that I have plenty of, you know, flower and fruit production. And of course, you're going to get rid of any dead or diseased or broken stuff. But uh, by keeping it pruned back thoughtfully, you can get maximum yield. Hmm. And so it's fruiting on new growth. And that would mean probably around now, um, end of winter, early spring would be the best time to prune it. Yeah. Right now, or really soon, it's going to start suckering, you know, sending up those new branches, and you can see them. So if you have anything really old or broken, clean it up and, you know, cut it back. And of course, you don't want to cut out the second and third year growth, because that's where you're going to really get your, you know, your heavy flowering and fruiting. I mean, it will still produce on older growth, but it, you can keep the plant healthy and producing more by pruning it. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining you're also keeping it within reach of you without having to get on a ladder. It's it's really hard to get ladders out and climb up to the top to get, you know, you, you can't lean on an elderberry tray too much. <laughs> you know, they, they actually call them small trees or large shrubs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's. It's hard to get those top ones. And usually what happens with me is I work, you know, where I can reach or or on a short ladder and the birds get the stuff up top. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fair. Yeah, which is fair. And I would say, yeah, let them have that and you can get the, you know, share by planting extra. And so for harvesting tips... Um, I'm imagining that we don't want to harvest all the flowers, right? Because then you don't have right. no berries. Right. And and that's hard because the flowers and the berries are used completely differently medicinally. And of course, in, in the kitchen culinarily. The flowers are fleeting and they're ethereal, and I want to capture them to make an elderflower liqueur. And and so they flower about here in about a, I'd say June. And it, it depends, you know, our seasons aren't always the same, but um, I keep an eye out for them. And you, you want to harvest flowers at their peak 
just like you would if you were entering them into a flower show. You want them not budded and not fully open. You want them just after they're, you know, they've fully opened pretty much mm-hmm. before they, you know, are spent. And so the uh, flowers can be, I mean, I've, I've harvested flower heads that were eight or 10 inches across easily. We want to uh, pay attention when they're starting to bud up mm-hmm. so that you get them at their peak. And uh, then what I do with those flowers Mostly I tincture them and that's for medicine because the flowers are a febrifuge and a diuretic. So they're going to reduce fever, which is completely different from what the berries do. And so I always want to have elderflower tincture on hand and uh, so that I can have it for reducing fevers and helping with colds and flus and things like that. But just a step different from the elderflower tincture is making an elderflower cordial. Um, And the elderflower cordial, of course, you're going to be uh, also infusing it in alcohol and you're going to be adding some kind of sweetener. You can either do it at the beginning of making the cordial or uh, later on you can add the sweetener. I like to add it, well, it depends what I'm doing. If If I have a big giant jar of you know, the tincture, then I might pour that off and and then go on and make the cordial. Or I might just begin a cordial in a quart jar and add my alcohol and my sugar syrup, or you could do honey or uh, whatever you, you want to do for sweetener. And um, one of the things that elder works really good with in a cordial is a little bit of lemon zest or a little bit of lemon juice. You don't want to do anything that takes too much away from that flowery flavor. You know, it's such mm-hmm. a wonderful essence that we, we don't really want to disturb it too much, but but lemon would work well there. So the other thing that I do with elderflowers is I make fritters, but usually only once in the season. And you do that by making a really light thin batter and dipping them in to the batter and then you know quickly frying them and draining them on a paper towel so an elderflower fritter is something that you don't get ever unless you grow your own (laughs) or you have a friend who's going to invite you over for tea so so all that said before we go any farther is that elder contains cyanogenic glycosides and that's the precursor to hydrocyanic acid. And therefore, it's really contained in the stems, seeds, bark, leaves of the plant and Mm. not so much in the flowers and the berries. But the little stems, all those little umbels that the tiny little flowers are attached to have some of that in them. So you don't really want to eat the other parts of the elder plant. You don't want to eat stems. Sort of when you do the fritter, you want to. Heat also does help to um, do away with that problem, and so does infusing in acid. So when I'm making an elderberry shrub, I'm not having to necessarily heat it. But generally, the the guideline is to heat it and to stay away from all the parts that have that toxicity. Mm-hmm. So when I do elderflower fritters, I'm keeping the stem on to dunk it and fry it, but then when I eat it, I discard, you know, any kind of big stem at all. Yeah, really good precaution to note. And I am a big fan of elderberry or elderflower liqueur in the form of St. Germain. 
And yes, isn't it wonderful? So good. So being able to make a home version and save a, f- a few pennies might be a nice thing, but also just having that scent of the elderflower, maybe even in a tiny little tussy mussy or little bouquet would be wonderful to have around as well. Yeah, I do dry the flowers so that I can make a an infusion also during the winter. And when I dry the flowers, I dry them on the stems. And then when they're fully dried, you know, I just take my hand and sort of brush through into a, them into a basket. And so then I get all the flowers petals and uh, I'm not dealing with any stems at all. And I have that, you know, ready to go, you know, the dried herb to use, I mean, the dried flower to ha- use it in uh, making teas. So the making of the cordial, really, you can make your own St. Germain and it and it's very tasty, uh, you know, because St. Germain is, is, is pricey, but it's so worth it to have that mm-hmm. on hand to to put in a cocktail, you know, or, you know, just put a little bit over. I find that I really like elder flower flavor with berries. So to put it over some sliced strawberries or um, raspberries, uh, it's it's quite a lovely combination, that elderflower mm. liqueur and I haven't berries. tried that. I definitely need to try that. And you're so right about the touch of lemon, just like a little tiny twist of lemon peel in an elderflower cocktail just hits that exact note that you need. And for those listeners who have never tried elderflower, uh, in a syrup or in a liqueur, I'm trying to describe the flavor as just a very light floral, not cloying at all. Right. It's it's to me. It's got it has just the slightest touch of musk to me, mm-hmm. but it's somewhat honeysuckle like. Yeah. But even more more delicate than than honeysuckle. So it's a it's a really great to be able to capture that essence, whether it's dried or in a liqueur or in a tincture. I would say it smells like springtime. That's or, yeah, or early that's summer. Good, <laughs> it, it does. Yeah. And it's um so I would say that probably if you're looking at the, the big bush <laughs> or the tree the small tree, I'm only going to probably harvest about 25% flowers and leave the rest for berries because the berries are so wickedly delicious in so many ways that I, I want berries more than flowers. But I do enjoy the having the, the fritters at least once and, and making a fresh flower infusion to drink, you know, and then to make my tincture and my cordial. So I gather enough for those, but uh, leave the rest for berry formation. Okay, we'll aim for 25%. It's going to be hard to restrain ourselves, Susan, but we're going to try. And I and I also heard, um, like you were saying, with the second and third year growth has the most flowers and berries, that you should also wait until that second or third year after you plant a new plant to harvest, you know, bypass that first year is what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. And you might, you might not even get any flower or fruit the first year, you know, especially on the the little fanciful ones. The, my variegated one has yet to flower <laughs> and it's three years old. <laughs> yep. And so speaking of the flowers, they're a favorite with pollinators. So that's one other benefit um, It is for our wildlife and our pollinators. And so let's move on to the berry end of the plant uh, harvest. And 
who eats those berries? We know the birds do, but do other wildlife enjoy them? And I'm thinking particularly, Susan, of the deer. Quite frankly, I haven't had a deer problem. And I have a lot of deer roaming about. But I I have not noticed them munched off by deer, really. You know, there's so much going on when the berries are in that the deer might not want them. I don't know. I But I haven't mm-hmm. noticed so much... Um, the deer, the birds definitely will get them, but I have never had to say battle the birds. Like I've had birds get blueberries where I didn't get any, hmm. but um, the birds don't get the my elderberries that quickly. Mm-hmm. They will. And especially if you leave them out there, they're going to get them. And so, you know, the birds are getting the ones up at the top and, you know, they might peck off a few down in my picking range. And I was just looking up the Rutgers um, information and it says rarely eaten. That doesn't mean they won't eat it, (laughs) but on the Rutgers University site, they have a really good survey of deer predation of plants and they're, they put rarely or seldom is usually a good rating. So that tells you it's probably a secondary or a third or or even last choice. They will eat it if they're starving, of course. Um, Right. But that's good to know. Right. Uh, um, And I, I have had people tell me that, you know, the birds really got all their elderberries and I, I haven't had that experience, thank goodness. But you could always put a net over, you know, it's a small tree, so you can, you could net it if you were having that kind of a problem. But if you get out there and harvest them when they're ready, you, you can beat the birds to it. If you leave them on there and just leave them, leave them, then the birds are going to get them, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, we just have to, to pay attention. So just while we're in the pests, uh, I will say that basically uh, there aren't too many diseases, but they can get a cane borer that uh, infects the older branches. And that's all the more reason to, you know, cut off dead old stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. But basically there aren't even that many insect pests either. Mm-hmm. And I think that is because of, as you noted before, the, the toxin in the stems and leaves. So that's probably somewhat protective of the plant and I did want to note on the bird netting that I would just caution people to check that netting um, maybe every morning and evening just to make sure no other creatures got caught in the netting because you know thank, that yes, thank you happen. for that it's um, quite dreadful to think of the amount of plastic barriers mm-hmm. uh, of every kind that we have that pollutes our earth but also kills our wildlife or torments them or makes them suffer horribly I it, it just breaks my heart you know so I try not to use things like bird netting but you could also hang things from the tree you know strips of shiny stuff or something like that, that all, all around the edge of my garden, I tie a cord and I hang, uh, aluminum pie plates and, and I don't buy them. I, I save mm-hmm. them up over the year. If I have them, you know, if something comes packaged in them and old CD discs and yes. I, I punch a hole, I tie them on there and those things move and blow in the wind and give off bright light and it really really helps to keep the deer and the birds and all the critters out of the garden because it's constant movement and you know those of you who have a pristine garden who live in the 
the city or, you know, or have a showcase kind of garden, you probably wouldn't want to do that. But out here in the country, I don't, I don't mind it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I would say I have similar reflective type things like your old CDs and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's the same theory as a scarecrow. You're trying to make something move in the wind that, you know, might startle them or scare them. And also the reflection um, could startle, especially the deer. Uh, So keeping those out. So if you hang a few of those in your elder tree, that will also help deter the birds. Yep, for sure. First, let's talk about the harvesting techniques. So because they are staining, right, do you wear gloves or do you do that with your bare hands? I I don't wear gloves. I can feel Mm -hmm. much better. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can pick them easier. And, and generally when I'm going out there, okay, so I have, I have great big flat gathering baskets and, uh, I have some of those, a harvest pouch, you know, a big harvest pouch, but I don't use my harvest pouch because they are, are staining, uh, to it, as you said. And, it's going to get on your hands for a couple of days, just like when I process turmeric, my hands are yellow for a couple of days. <laughs> it's okay. It's part of being a gardener. I sort of wear it as a, <laughs> as a proud badge. You know? mm-hmm. um, so the way that I harvest the berries is to go out with my felcos and my baskets, and you're going to grab the stem that is on the umble and cut that. And then I place them in the basket, berry side down with the stem sticking up so I can just keep stacking. And then they're easily easy to pull apart when, you know, instead of just laying them in sideways or, or um, whatever, I just find that's the best way to to stack them in the basket. And I cut the whole umble, you know, the big stem that's going to contain all of them, you know, because the berries are all on little stems off of mm-hmm. uh, a, a pedestal, you know, and then, so, you know, just think of the way that uh, dill or fennel flowers grow, you know, you're going to cut the, the thick main stem. Um, the whole head off. Yes. And uh, when they are ready for harvest, okay, and this is, is important, you don't want to cut a berry head that has green berries on it. They need to be totally ripe. The green ones are inedible and really high in the, the toxins. Okay. You do, don't ever want to eat green elderberries. You want to be sure that they're purple and ready. They're right. That's really important. So I'm cutting off, I'm pruning off the entire cluster and then I'm going, and this is here, it's in late August, early September, depending on the variety. And, and I've got all purple berries and then I'm going to bring them onto my back porch in the shade and, and deal with them. And so, you know, the day that I go out and do my first cutting, it's, I'm not cutting everything because you've got a, a week or 10 days window of ripening. So you, you won't cut them all the very first day you cut, but you'll do it within a week or so of it. Get them all. Then I need to decide what I'm going to do with them. I always dry some. And because I have great big flat baskets, the, I dry a lot in, in right in the baskets. I have screens too that I dry in. And so I'm going to leave a layer of these clusters of berries and the berries are down and the stem is sticking up one layer thick of berries. I'm going to leave them to dry. Okay. Just right out in room temperature. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to take some of those berries and I'm going to start plucking them off and uh, it's time consuming. (laughs) It, It just is. So I've, I take a, 
ahead at a time into a big silver stainless bowl and pop off all the berries into the bowl. And then I'm going to process them. And I'm going to process them once I get them off of the stems pretty quickly. What I'm going to do with my first round of them is I'm going to make a tincture. I'm going to do them in alcohol. And I generally use 100 proof vodka. I really love the flavor of brandy. So sometimes I do a brandy tincture mm-hmm. and and that's going to be for medicine. And then I'm going to take quite a few of these berries that I pop off and I'm going to macerate or infuse them in uh, organic apple cider vinegar and make an elderberry shrub. Um, And I probably like the shrub better than the tincture or the syrup. That's my favorite way of taking elderberries. Oh, yes. So good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to, mind you, this is is taking a very long time to pluck all these off. And it's really always more fun to do this with a friend or or two or three. And you can harvest together and then sit there and pluck together and, you know, have a a St. Germain elderberry spritzer while you're you're plucking. I'm going to definitely uh, prepare the shrub. Depending upon how many berries I have or what I'm doing, I might make a syrup at that time. Also, if I've spent a whole day, a lot of times if I have more to harvest or I still have some of that harvest left, I'm going to take them on stems still and sort of roll them up and put them in a baggie and a large baggie and put them in the freezer. And that way, I have them frozen for the rest of the winter or for when I have time to make jam or jelly or pie or, you know, just if I don't have time to get to them, putting them in the freezer is better than I would only refrigerate them for a day or two. So um, putting them in the freezer allows you to be able to work with them later. And also the benefit of putting them into the freezer is when you take them out, they fall off the stems way easier. Ah, there you go. Um, So I have heard of some people putting them in dehydrators. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can dehydrate them. Uh, I'm just leaving mine to dry out there in the basket. And then when they're dried in the basket, they're much easier to pluck off the stems too when they're dry Mm -hmm. than when they're fresh. And so if you put them in the dehydrator, they're going to be the same way. After I dry them in the basket and I feel like they're really pretty, pretty dry and I uh, sit there with my bowl and bounce all the little berries, they are bouncy around. They do bounce around when you're plucking dried ones or or frozen ones off. Um, (laughs) Then generally I either put them in the dehydrator, just the berries dried alone, you know, overnight to make sure there's any excess water in there at all is evaporated. If there's any dampness, uh, because it's humid here in the summertime to dry them. Um, Because after going through all this trouble, you definitely don't want them to mold in the bottle. So I just put them in the dehydrator or in my oven overnight with the light on to take any excess moisture out of those dried berries before I put them in a jar. Mm. And we're not eating the elderberries straight off the shrub, correct, in the garden? No. Uh uh-uh. So because of the cyanide in there, you're not supposed to eat them directly off of the bush because it's contained in the seed. It's not in the fruit at all, but it's in the seed. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Okay, so eating them raw is a no-no. However, I know many herbalists who have eaten them raw. And they have lived to tell about it. You know, I have a friend who makes every year fresh elderberry ice cream and it's divine. So all that said, it's prudent to not eat them raw. So what you want to do is heat them. When you make a syrup, you're going to heat them and that will keep you from having any kind of a a toxicity. And what I do to make that elderberry, I, I either make a syrup or a juice with them. And what I do is I cook them down with a little bit of water, whether they're freshly harvested or frozen, and then I allow the contents to cool. And then the concentrated juice can be extracted from the berries by using a mooly uh, or a sieve, you know, running them through a sieve to get those seeds out. So then I have a juice concentrate, and I can use that for jams or jellies or shrubs or cordials or whatever I want. And I keep that in the refrigerator for 24 to 48 hours. And if I want to keep it any longer, then I'm going to freeze it for up to six months. And the other thing that you can do if you really have a lot of it is to can it. But then you got to process it in a hot water bath um, Mm -hmm. in order to keep it for any length of time. Otherwise, you have to freeze it. You know, you can juice them like that and, and have that on hand. Or you can um, take that juice and go ahead and make a syrup. And again, you're going to do the same thing. If you have the syrup, the syrup can keep in the refrigerator for, you know, a couple, three weeks. Um, But if you're going to keep it for any length of time, you got to freeze it or you got to process it in the water bath. I prefer to freeze it because uh, processing it kills some of the nutrients, you know, um, some of its virtues. But um, generally with, I do two cups of elderberry juice to two cups of local honey. So I process it in small amounts and then I keep the berries or the juice in the freezer and pull it out and use it throughout the season. I make a shrub and I put my elderberries, whether they're fresh, frozen, or dried in the organic apple cider vinegar. Mm-hmm. And um, they're not crushed, so the seed is not exposed to the acid, but the acid also helps to um, negate the, the cyanide, that, that toxicity. So what I do is I infuse my elderberries for anywhere from a month to three months. And sometimes I've even left them in until the next season. And I strain them out of the vinegar, and then I add... A lot of recipes for shrubs say equal parts honey to to vinegar, and I find that way, way too sweet. And generally, my my shrub is about, if I'm using a quart of apple cider vinegar that's been infused, I'm going to use a, a scant two cups of honey. And when I am infusing the elderberries, if I want to do a double or a triple whammy, for a syrup for the winter time, I will put some ginger root in there and maybe even a few cloves or a cinnamon stick. Mostly I just like straight on elder and ginger together. And because of elder's immunostimulant activity, it's going to, um, and with with ginger's wonderful anti-inflammatories, um, it's, it's a, it's a double whammy. If you have a cold or a sore throat, um, I did a lot of it when I had 
COVID or whenever I get a flu and it just knocks it out. And, and of course the vinegar helps to do that too, but there are so many antioxidants in there and, you know, elder historically has been used for treating a lot of ailments, but mostly respiratory, you know, colds and flus. So that's what I really use my shrub for. I make more shrub than I do all the other products and remedies because I love the way that it tastes. I use it as to make spritzers or cocktails. You can put it in salad dressing because it's already a vinegar base. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the the berries are just so high in vitamin C. They've got A and B in there too. So they're they're wonderful, wonderful medicine. I truly like making the shrub the best, but I do make the syrup. I do make jellies and jams. You can make a a syrup and, you know, add pectin and make it thick up, you know, for a jelly. But uh, it, the syrup is just wonderful too. So you can use it as a base for a mocktail or a cocktail. You can drizzle it over cakes or fruit. Um, stirring elderberry shrub or syrup into a lemonade or an iced tea, you know, it's or a natural with water to make a natural soda. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just the best way to get it in there. And, and I probably do some elder every day during the winter season. And, and it can be anywhere from a tablespoon to a shot glass. And I would say that, um, many people have been using it and didn't even know it. You know, they've been buying the store brand Sambucol, um, yeah. with elderberry extract and have been told by their doctors to take it. There was a time during the early part of the COVID pandemic where I couldn't even get a hold of elderberry syrup because it was just stripped from the shelves and online. It was virtually impossible to order it. And if people aren't uh, familiar with the proven elderberry um, studies and benefits, they can go to the NIH website. So NIH.gov and you just enter elderberries and it is amazing. Uh, the proven studies and I've even read, read one um, that it's shown to even fight HIV, which I was surprised at that. I knew about the other virus, uh, antiviral activities that it has, but I didn't even think about that aspect. Yeah, it's amazing how our, <laughs> our administration uh, studies herbs and which ones they choose. And elderberries because of their antiviral immunostimulant properties has been one of the herbs that have been studied more than others. You can go online and find tons of them, but it really has wonderful immunostimulant properties, but it's also antiviral. It reduces inflammation and it strengthens the cardiovascular system. And they've, they're doing studies with it for cancer you know, and HIV. Um, so it's, it's a really old plant and it's been used throughout history. It's really revered in Europe. Um, you know, our elder mother, you have to ask permission before you take the berries or cut the branches or, you know, whatever you do. And, and it's also the, the symbol of the, the three maidens, uh, the herbal maidens that it's the crondom, you know, it's the crone, the ancient earth mother, uh, hmm. elder mother is what they call her over there. And, and they celebrate her and this tree and they give thanks to the tree before they cut it. There's all kinds of Celtic and Druid ceremonies involving elder, but um, it's just got so many um, 
wonderful virtues, you know, and it's also an expectorant and a, a laxative, you know, it's, it's just got so many things going on that uh, we have to pay attention to, to this plant. The way to do that is to grow it. <laughs> so you I have agree. it in your own yard and you can make all these wonderful <laughs> remedies and, you know, keep yourself healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Susan, I just want to thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom and all these great tips for not only growing elderberry, but for the preparations and the uses for it. Uh, even if you just want to have a little sip of that elderflower cordial on a cold winter's day, maybe added to your tea. Maybe I'm thinking a little bit of chamomile tea <laughs> wouldn't be bad yeah. with that. Yeah, um, it's, and... it's suggestive of chamomile slightly, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the flowers are. So, um, if uh, I can send you, uh, the recipes for the elderberry syrup and juice and shrub, if you want, that would be wonderful. We could post those and then send links to our, in the show notes. And how would our listeners be able to contact you to find out more about, um, your herbal classes that you have coming up or just to contact you if they have more questions? Okay, so my my website susanbelsinger.com and my email is sbcooks at susanbelsinger.com. Great. And Susan, any last thoughts on our wonderful plant, the elderberry? In the next, you know, from here through May or June is the time to get your plant and, you know, put it in and, uh, you know, put it in a place where it can spread, where it can have good drainage and, you know, part sun to part shade. And um, the the most important thing, you know, I have a Materia Medica where I keep track of information, um, medicinal, all the aspects of different herbs. And um, it's really important that we properly identify anything before we use it, <laughs> before we bring it into our kitchens and eat it or make mm-hmm. medicine, you know, um, and be responsible human beings for what we're doing. It's a, it's a good thing. Go online, look at the plant, make sure you're, you know, you got the right thing, especially if you're harvesting from the wild, always leave some for the birds and the person behind you never clean off a tree. Totally. You always want to leave some, some of the berries and flowers behind. Thank you, Susan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dill Plant Profile Dill, Anethum graviolens, is an annual herb that is native to Eurasia and the Mediterranean. Dill is used in pickling and in such dishes as potato salad, sauerkraut, and fish preparations. It has beautiful ferny foliage and pretty yellow flowers. In addition to its culinary uses, dill attracts beneficial insects. It is a host plant for the caterpillar of the black swallowtail butterfly. It was named Herb of the Year in 2010. Grow it in full sun and in well-draining soil. 
protected from strong winds. It's hardy to USDA zones 2 to 11. Dill is best started by direct sowing seeds in the ground. It can also be grown in containers. It has a long taproot, so it doesn't like to be moved or transplanted. To have a continual supply of dill, sow a new row of seeds every few weeks. You should occasionally weed around the plants and thin out the new seedlings once they are a few inches high. Pinch off the flower heads to encourage fuller leaf growth, which is the main part you will be harvesting for use in cooking. Once the dill plant has five to six leaves on it, you can start harvesting them. To harvest the leaves, pinch or snip them off with kitchen scissors. Select the older leaves first. Towards the end of the season, let the dill flower and form seed heads. Collect the seeds for use in cooking and to plant some for next year. If you let the seeds fall where they are growing, they will often self-sow themselves next season. It is deer resistant and makes a charming addition to a cut flower bouquet. Dill, you can grow that. What's new this week in the garden? Well, I'm happy to report that the first daffodils are blooming and those include the February gold and the tete-a-tete are closely following on their heels. On our social media at WDC Gardener this week, we shared garden tasks and tips, including the best times for pruning your evergreens. So check those out by following us on Twitter slash X, Facebook, or joining the Washington Gardener Google group. Some local gardening events you might want to attend include Into the Weeds, A Forager's Way to Garden. And this is online via Zoom and in person, hosted by the Maryland Native Plant Society on March 9th at 10.30 a.m. And you can register for that at mdflora.org. And on the weekend of Friday, March 8th through Sunday, March 10, is the 2024 Maryland Orchid Society Show and Sale held in the main building at the Timonium Fairgrounds outside Baltimore, Maryland. And this is in conjunction with the Maryland Home and Garden Show. You can find out more about this display at marylandorchids.org. Finally, on April 11th, the National Gallery of Art is holding Flowers After Hours. And this is a special event that you'll need to register for online at the NGA website because it is an open hours and a party all about flowers. So don your best fascinators and celebrate everything spring and floral. There'll be cherry blossoms, a live DJ, and lots more besides pop-up talks and opportunities and a peek behind the scenes with the National Gallery staff. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jentz. 
reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional everyday grass lawn in the last few years alone over 23 million american adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape and now are looking to do even more the biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job ground cover revolutions here with all the answers you need Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is Christy Page from Green Prince with the last word on winter dreams of spring. This is the time of year that always starts to drag for me. The holidays have come and gone, the new year is upon us, the falling snow has lost some of its novelty. It's just plain old cold. This is the time of year when I start wondering why I live in New England. Then I remember spring. I am here because I love the changing of the seasons, but mostly spring. This year, I decided that if I start thinking, thinking positive thoughts about spring, it will help keep the cold at bay. It isn't any warmer outside, but my outlook has definitely improved. With it, a new sense of excitement has emerged. I am happy that my flower beds are happily resting so that they are ready for the gorgeous plants that will be filling their spaces this spring. In true me fashion, I've started making lists and charts for what I will be planting. The front raised beds will be filled with cucumbers, tomatoes, zucchini, and summer squash. The barrels by my fairy garden need some fertilizer and hopefully the strawberries will come back plumper than ever. We need a couple new blueberry bushes over on the edge of the lawn. Unfortunately, some were trampled by the bear and are not doing as well as I had hoped. I'm also contemplating and adding a couple of apple trees next to the peach tree in the side yard. As I think about it some more, maybe that is the biggest draw of winter. What a great time for me to dream and plan my garden for the year. I can also do all sorts of reading and research that I don't have time for during the seasons when I am so busy planting, weeding, pruning, harvesting, and just gardening. I'm rereading our wonderful guides on blueberries, tomatoes, squash, and strawberries, anxious to see if there's anything I may have missed in the past. I'm also intently digesting 
the apple guide. I've been so hesitant for years on whether or not I should plant apple trees, afraid that they might be too much work. I'm thinking, though, that it might not be as bad as I have feared. This may be the year to finally plant some apple trees. I definitely have plenty of time to plan, research, and prepare. (laughs) As much as I love the first snowfall, winter will never be my favorite season. I have, though, found a new love for it. It is a time to rest and rejuvenate, not just for me, but also for my gardens. So I will brace the rest of winter with a hot cup of tea, a warm blanket, and my gardening planner. This has been Christy Page with Green Prince and Food Gardening Network. Have a great day. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Garden DC. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.blogspot.com. Thank you. You can find and follow Washington Gardener on Twitter, slash X, Instagram, and Pinterest at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook at Washington Gardener Magazine. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Spotify and Apple. Open the Spotify or Apple app, search for Garden DC, check on the rate button, and select five stars.